Colossians chapter 4, people, since we're starting again now, all, uh, all uh, uh, errors out of the way. Colossians chapter 4, at the end of this uh, beautiful epistle that Paul has written from his uh, house arrest, his little imprisonment in the great city of Rome, which he had, uh, he had long uh, desired to get to, and God did finally answer his prayers by sending him in chains. Here he is, and he's written back to the church that Epaphras had... Uh, had uh, are planted, and now after some heretics had come on the scene about 10 years later, he runs over to Rome where he hears that Paul is in arrest. He encourages Paul, but also asks of Paul some help. He says, please, please write back to them. Please give me something I can carry back. Please tell me what I need to say. This church needs some apostolic authority and some apostolic encouragement. And so we've seen uh, Paul so far uh, uh, going back against the whole Colossian heresy, the whole this whole idea that what you need in order to be made right with God is Christ plus something else, some of your own experiences, some of your own good works, some of your own angelic contact. You need something. And to be, to be fully godly in life, you need, to, you need to have Jesus, yes. You need to know the Word of God, yes. But then you also need the ancient wisdom of the, the pagans, and you need to uh, engage with the pagan cultic uh, sexual uh, worship and idolatry and all of that. And that's how you, you really come to fullness. But the, the overarching, the, the permeating, the thread that has been intertwined by God throughout this whole letter has been that Jesus... Jesus Christ from first to last is absolutely sufficient for every one of God's people for all time. Amen? That every single person who wants to come to God, who wants to have our sins forgiven, who wants to be made right and escape the torment of hell that we all deserve, if you want to be, be, be forgiven of the consequence of the sins that you've lived in, if you want to be freed from living in the darkness and in the death of your sin, if you want to be, be given and gifted an eternal life in heaven, if you want to know the God who created you, the only thing that you will ever need is faith in Jesus Christ because everything that God requires of you, he required of Jesus and Jesus gave it all. He gave his life as a sacrifice. He lived his life to produce a perfect atonement and righteousness. He rose for you. He now rules for you. And therefore, all you need to do is trust in Jesus, is to come to Jesus and, and join in, in his team, in his side, in his, his, his own self, as it were, so that when God looks at you, by faith alone, he sees you tied up with Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, by faith alone, he sees you in the accounting of Jesus Christ, his son. So that when God looks at his son, he sees you tied up in and with his son so that you are blessed with everything Jesus is blessed with and you receive the love that God owes to his own dear son. That's what Paul's been slamming home every single line of this letter. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only way of salvation, forgiveness, sanctification, and he is absolutely, gloriously, beautifully, maximally sufficient. When you have him, you have everything you need to be saved. When you have only faith, you have everything you need to be justified. And when you have a, 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 a mind that is being shaped by Jesus Christ, you have everything you need to be sanctified more and more and more. And so, of course, in the last couple of chapters, we've arrived at this idea of how the gospel changes us. Because how we get saved is not that we get changed. We do not change ourselves and then come into the good books with God. First of all, he forgives us, redeems us, declares all of our sins as done away with because of Jesus' work. And then after that, in Colossians 3 and 4, we've been seeing that then we realize we're a new creation. We have a new spirit. We've been made alive, he told us. We have a new life within us. And therefore, he said, we put on the new self. We dress differently in the spiritual sense. We, we look differently with how we live how we treat people, what we spend our time doing, what we talk about, what we love, what we're, what we're drawn by and desiring deeply within us. All of that is entirely changed. This is what Paul is called putting on the new self. You're a new person, he's saying, so act like it. And last week we saw how this affects the most uh, uh, down-to-earth relationships that we have. You, you being a Christian, having been justified by faith alone and born again by the Holy Spirit, that reality will touch and affect entirely every single relationship that you have. 
So we saw how wives and husbands, that whole relationship changes. We saw how parents and children, that whole relationship changes. We saw how workers and employees, that whole relationship changes. And in case you think that you've got a jerk for a boss, Paul in the original context was talking to slave masters and slaves. So there's just like zero room for excuse, no matter how hard your boss treats you, it still comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ and he demands hard work and gracious treatment. And then, and then today, we're going to go from verse 2 in chapter 4 until the end, and we're gonna, he's first of all going to teach us or, or, or command about us how to, how to evangelize, how to pray, and then give us a whole bunch of good examples uh, coming out of his motley crew, his, his gents that are with him, some of them he's sent with the letter to the church in Colossae. We'll, we'll, we'll run through a bunch of the guys that uh, Paul then lists at the end of the chapter here. But the, 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 the thread that runs through this last sort of chapter from verse 2 onwards is the, is the fact that the, the ordinary things that ordinary Christians can do in very ordinary settings that have extraordinary effect for the gospel. That's what we're going to see. So look with me to verse 2 as I read the words of the only true living God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to which the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, and give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read among the church in the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laod uh, to Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. May God bless his own inerrant authoritative word in our midst this evening. Well, it's a beautiful end to this, to this glorious epistle. And we're going to start gleaning lessons from what Paul says here in verse 2 and 3 with the lesson of agonizing prayer. The first way that we can do ordinary things as ordinary people in our ordinary settings is that we can be committed to agonizing prayer. Prayer, look at verse 2 and 3. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. There is no greater subject, there's no greater aim, there's no greater goal that we can set our prayers to than this that the mystery of Christ might be given opportunity so that those who know it would be able to speak it. This is the most glorious, this is the most incumbent, this is the most vital and urgent topic that Christians should give our praying to. That Christians are enabled by the Holy Spirit, that we are given opportunities by God's sovereignty and his providence, that we might find windows, find doors, 
For heaven's sake, give me a crack in a wall and I'll run through that. Give us something that we might be able to slip the gospel into, that we might be able to speak the gospel into, that we might have opportunities to speak beyond our own planning, beyond our own means. And and we see in history that Paul's question here, his prayer request would be answered. God would go on to give him opportunities to preach the gospel to Nero twice, that he would preach the gospel to kings and not be ashamed as the psalmist writes in Psalm 119. This is the most important thing that we can be praying for and needs to take up, I dare say, the bulk of your prayer time. As much as you pray for your own needs, as much as you pray for people that you love, as much as we pray for our provisions, let us pray all the more for the opportunity for the gospel to go out and for Christians, us, being willing to speak it. This is the most important thing. Jesus even said this, don't worry about what you eat and what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. The most important thing to seek first is the kingdom of God. All the other things will be given to you. Just rest on God's sovereign fatherly love and get to work for the mission. Pray, Jesus would say, pray for the laborers to be sent to the harvest because there is, there is wheat everywhere just waiting to be plucked, but people are not going. This is, this is kind of the Pauline way to say the very same thing as Jesus said. Jesus said, as he taught the the Lord's Prayer, one of his first petitions that he taught us to pray was, Thy kingdom come. May, May your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Now, how much, to what degree is the will of God obeyed in heaven? It is to every dot, jot, and tittle. Everything that God says is done to immediate, exact, precise, and perfect obedience in heaven. And that is what we're praying for. But, but that can feel a little bit vague. That could feel a little bit maybe spiritual, maybe, maybe too ethereal to say, thy kingdom come and may your perfect will be done on earth. What am I even praying for? Here's the Pauline way to put legs on that prayer. Father God, may the mystery of Christ on the tongues and in the hearts of your people, would you give opportunities for that to go spreading out into our relationships, spreading out into the ears of those that they might be saved, added to the church, and the kingdom keeps on advancing. That's what we ought to pray, for opportunities of openness for the gospel and for that we Christians would be willing and able and ready to give a defense to speak of the hope, to invite people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says here, instead of saying the gospel, he says the mystery of Christ. This is simply Paul alluding again to what he's mentioned back in chapter 2. He mentioned it back in chapter 1, which is the reality that in the gospel of Jesus, we don't just have a new chapter of Bible. We don't just have a new chapter of God's revelation. Rather, what we have is the fulfillment of everything that all of the Old Testament revelation was ultimately about. When he says the mystery of Christ, what he means is the fact that the prophecies, the promises, the vague ideas, the the typologies, the pictures, everything was pointing to and culminated in Jesus Christ, in his perfect life, in his death on the cross in our place, and his resurrection from the dead, and his enthronement at the right hand of the Father to rule over the kingdom of God, this kingdom of redemption. All of that is entailed in the mystery of Christ, in the sense that it was a mystery, and now it has been revealed. Now it has been fulfilled in this glorious thing we call the new covenant, the new testament, the church, whatever you want to sort of label this age as, this is what we have fulfilled, the mystery of Christ. And so he means there simply that the gospel would be on our hearts, in our mouths. Would you pray that we can do that? In this section, the, the theologians, the scholars, they sort of break up Paul's chapter 3 and 4, and they say from verse 2 onwards, he starts talking about how to relate to outsiders, which is kind of a, uh, uh, he's, he's basically just taken the same letter structure as anybody else would have been writing in his day, and he ap- applies Christian teaching and, and his own content to it. And, and they say, you know, he's just done the household code when you talk about fathers, uh, husbands and wives, fathers and children, slaves and slave masters, and then outsiders. And so he's sort of in the section that scholars look at and sort of indent it all and say, we're in the section here about how to relate to people on the outside of the kingdom of God. And so we say, why does he go to prayer? 
He's about to go to evangelism, but in the very same breath, he actually starts talking about prayer. Have you ever thought that one of the most important ways that you relate to people outside the kingdom is through your prayer life? Much more important than whether you're a nice neighbor, and I hope you are. Much more important as to whether you give good Christmas gifts and bundles in the workplace, and I hope you do. Much more important than your own relationship with them is your, your, your mediated relationship with them through prayer. Leonard Ravenhill used to say that they can, they can stop listening to your conversations. They can ignore your arguments. They can better you in your, in your apologetics, but they are hopeless and helpless, defenseless against your prayers. In prayer, we bring God into the relationship. In, in prayer, Paul's put prayer here in how we relate to outsiders because he sees prayer not just as how we get holy, not just as how we conform ourselves to the will of God, not just how, how we learn the Bible better or how we get our temptations gotten rid of or how we have our, our needs met, but primarily he's seeing prayer here as how we advance the Great Commission, how I relate to my non-Christian brother, my friend, my son, my child, my daughter, my, my father, my, my husband, my wife, at Christmas time especially. Are we thinking this way, that the most important part of our relationship to our unsaved is how often they are on our hearts and on our tongues before the Father in prayer. Mission is driven by prayer. Prayer is given for mission. Ravenhill used to say this, that prayer is not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. That if we think prayer is just something kind of like warm-ups before the grand final, and if you don't do that really well, then you probably won't perform great. You might pull a hammy. You won't, you won't do tremendously, but, but you'll get through. If we think of it that way, we'll be the cocky athlete who can go out there, uh, not warm up, haven't warmed up for six months, still get MVP, we'll do fine. But when we realize that the victory is secured in our prayers... The prayer is where the battleground is, life, the conversation, the, the conversion of your loved one, the conversion of the friend that comes to church and ends up getting baptized. That's just the visible manifestation of the victory that was first won in prayer. We need to be a church that is on our knees for our loved ones, for our friends, and, and not that, that, that might seem initially like, like a task that is too big for any of us because, oh, what, 100 people with, with 10 people at work, 20 people in my family, 10 people on the street. I mean, this is too many numbers, too many people to consider, but, but not if we do it individually. Not if, like Nehemiah, you just take responsibility for the section of the wall outside your house. If you just think of those closest to you and take them one by one to the throne of God, as opportunities open themselves, you are able to step into them and to evangelize them. Prayer is where the battle is won. Ravenhill would say that prayer, prayer in its highest form is agonizing soul sweat agonizing soul sweat as, as your soul is pressed like a, like, a gym, uh, like a man in the gym, like, as your soul is stretched and is agonized, it itself sweats. And what comes out of the soul when it is agonizing before God? Those are your prayers, your deepest desires that, that come out as we go before the Lord, of, the Lord of all glory on our knees in prayer. And Epaphras is the example given to us for this. So look, we were just told, of course, if the gospel goes forward by prayer and preaching, and we are willing to preach, and, but we ought to be praying, praying and preaching always together, of course, verse 2 makes sense that he says, continue steadfastly in it, being watchful. He commands those things, and Epaphras over in verse 12 becomes to us one of the great examples. Verse 12 and 13 reads like this, Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning He's one of the Colossians. He doesn't need to do a whole lot of introduction because they know who Epaphras is. He's their pastor. He planted the Colossian church and probably the church in Hierapolis and probably the church in Laodicea as well. He was a, he was a hardworking church planner. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. He's saying that Paul, but Paul is saying that, that Epaphras has done hard work. You know what he did? Epaphras lived in Colossae and back in Acts chapter 19, you all remember, when, when Paul was there for two years reasoning, preaching, proclaiming, debating in the hall of Tyrannus, 
for whatever reason, probably business, he was Epaphras. He was in town. He heard Paul's preaching. He got converted. He got trained, apparently. And then he got sent back to his home region, and he planted those three churches. Not at all an easy task. If we, if we can take Paul's life and his examples and any of the other missionaries as any kind of clue, then he would have gone, he would have received beatings from the Jews and the Gentiles. He would have been ostracized, cut off, insulted, persecuted. He, he would have had this terrible Pauline, meaning just like Paul. Last time I used Pauline in a sermon, somebody thought I was referencing Ms. Hansen. Not doing that. Pauline means Paul-esque, just like Paul. There you go. Some of you finally got it. <clears throat> Where were we? So, so we see this, uh, this reality that if his ministry was Pauline, Paul-esque, if it was like him, then surely so were his sufferings. He was, su he was struggling with hard labor. The ESV says, worked hard for you there in verse 13. But that's not where his ministry or his hard work, his agonizing suffering ended. In fact, we see that Paul says that he agonizes on your behalf in his Prayers. That's the, that's the word behind struggling there. In the Greek, it's agonizomai, the word that we get for agonizing, the word of agony, the soul pain, the, the, the grief down to our very core. When pain is at its zenith, that's the word for agonizing. So he'd worked hard in ministry, but a key part of that ministry remained yet still with Epaphras in, over with Paul in Rome as he agonized for them in prayer. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, Paul says, agonize in the good fight. Fight the good fight is what he was saying. Contend, be, be a soldier in the warfare, and Epaphras was. But he continued that agonizing in his prayer. When he was far away and he couldn't preach, he had no opportunity at this chance while he was visiting Paul in Rome. He couldn't plant another church. He couldn't write another sermon. He couldn't do evangelism in his hometown that he loved, that he, that he worked so hard in to see converted. He couldn't do that. But what could he do? He could pray. He had hours. Pastors don't get holidays in the true sense of the word. No matter how far you fly, no matter how many devices you turn off, the crisis follows you somehow. Somebody messages you, somebody gets contact with you, and you're hearing about things going on back home. Pastors just don't really get holidays till they die, okay? But, but I would like to think that pastors could get holidays before the internet, that they could leave, and unless they wanted to, they didn't get letters. They weren't getting bings on their Bible app. They, they weren't getting anything. The email wasn't reaching them. There was no phone. It was just them in a faraway island somewhere, but, but not Epaphras even when he could have turned off finally. Years, 10 years he's been laboring in church planting. Three churches, 10 years. That, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Planted the, the first foundational generation of the churches, laboring for them, fighting heretics, getting beaten up, and here he finally gets a trip to the imperial city, Rome. But what does he do? He commits himself to sweating to sleepless nights, to suffering, to agonizing himself to the point of pain as he does not give himself the, the barrier, the, 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 the cushion between himself and his church's sufferings. He entered into them with his people. He considered each family. He considered each person. He considered each lost person. He entered into their pain. Father God, save them. Father God, help them. Help this father who's struggling with his children. Help this cousin who is not yet saved. Help this pastor who is on the end of collapse. Help this mother who is, who is struggling without a husband with these children. Help these people, God, as he would agonize that they would stand mature and with full assurance in the will of God. Epaphras is a wonderful and glorious example for us. Prayer is at its highest form, agonizing soul sweat. No matter what you can't do, no matter what you can't do at the moment, you can pray. You can continue steadfastly in prayer with watchfulness. Some of you are at a chapter or sort of a, a season in your life where you can't do what you wish that you could do. Maybe, maybe some kind of type of ministry, some kind of calling to ministry. The door is not open for you at the moment. You can't give your life to it, but you can pray. Like Epaphras, removed from his flock, you can get on your knees night by night, sacrifice at least as much time as you're watching Netflix, Get up at least as early as you're willing to get up and watch the World Cup. 
Sacrifice all that you can and be a prayer. Some of you simply have, have family things that are getting in the way and you cannot, or you feel that are getting in the way, that, that, you, that you wish that they would be removed so you could do the real work for the kingdom, but you need to realize that even that, this season is God's providential gift to you and maybe one of the areas that you that you could amplify, that you've got, that is an untapped resource for you at the moment. While you may be maybe more homebound than you wish you were, you can pray. You can continue steadfastly in prayer with watchfulness. Some of you want to be on missions, and it's just not there yet. Maybe you want to be an elder. You feel a sense of call there, but, but there's no way you're going to be going in the next 12 months. There's, there's no way you can order things, get prepared, get trained in the time that you just wish you could. But what you can do is pray and agonize in prayer, lose sleep in prayer, take yourself to prayer until you cry. Pray and pray and pray continuously staying watchful in it. Some of you feel like you've fallen through the gaps of God's plans. He's got great plans for other people, other mates, other young guys, other gals, other, other gifted people, but I've really fallen through the gap. God never loses out, fails to plan for one of his children. Whatever you can't do at the moment, you can be given to prayer and just watch the opportunities that God opens up. Some of you are limited on resources, whether it's funds or time or, or work, whatever it is that is limited, what you are unlimited with is the same as all of us have, time, and time that can be given to continuous, steadfast, watchful prayer with thanksgiving. Let us agonize in this as Epaphras did without any excuse, but be those given to soul-sweating prayer. And what goes hand in hand with this, we'll see, look at verse 4. Four through six, we see wise evangelism. Agonizing prayer hand in hand with wise evangelism. He says in verse four, as you pray, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The umbrella here is wisdom. How should you as a Christian, born again by the Spirit, alive in Jesus Christ, with a new self, living differently at home, working hard at my job, living under the fruit of the Spirit, this is my new self. How ought I use my time the best way possible while on earth towards outsiders, towards those who are not in the kingdom yet? And here's what Paul says, three things. Grace, salt, and clarity. Grace is, is, the, is the idea here that he's saying your speech, be gracious, uh, be in goodwill, uh, benevolent, uh, kind-hearted. You want to be kind to people? I'm going to just put in brackets here. I always say this when we teach about evangelism, normal human being. Not worldly. Don't hear me say that as you have your conversations, you be worldly, you pretend you're not a Christian. Not saying that, but please, how many Christians are out there who as soon as they realize that, an event, that a conversation has turned evangelistic, they turn into a nut job. They just turn wacko. They just go back to the script that they learned five years ago. They, all they learn how to speak in is the KJV. They're saying these and thys all over the place. They, 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 they forget normal parlance and normal courtesy. They cut people off. They, 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 they yell. They sit in a different posture. Friends, have some grace, some goodwill, some benevolence, some, some good faith in your conversation. In other words, be a kind, normal, loving human being. As you're talking to people and you're aiming for these opportunities you're praying for to open up, you, you don't need to be so bashful, so harsh, so unloving and unkind as if you're Isaiah and they are the condemned harlot and whore Israel of the 7th century B.C. Let's hope and, and have a good will about ourselves that we expect that God will be wooing this person's heart, that he will be working in them to bring them to the gospel. And so we can speak with some grace. But lest you think I sound like a liberal, also, Paul says, speak with some salt. That is that our conversation is to be edifying. Like Calvin says in, the, in this commentary, he says, saltless speech in this analogy is the kind of speech that is unedifying. It, it has no hope of actually building somebody up. And, and that might be the overly gracious conversation, or it might be the, the, the graceless conversation, where you're, where you're harsh, you're brutal, you're mean, you're, you're rude, you're the Old Testament prophet, and they're the harlot. Or, or it might be where you're just so kind, so nice, afraid to say anything offensive. And in both situations, you weren't able to communicate anything in the conversation that would build them up. 
actually advance their knowledge of the gospel, actually increase their understanding of what it is that God has said in this beautiful book, the Bible. So we want grace in how we converse. We want to be friendly, kind, loving neighbors and friends. And also, we want to be those who are salty. Like, like any good meal, if it's bland, if it is saltless, you'll be spitting it out. And, and if the chef runs out and tells you the other ingredients he put in it, you, you just don't care. If it's bland, salt brings out the best of all flavors. But there's such a thing as too much. You take three cups of salt, I, know, I do that, that's my chips, Sunday afternoon, that's my Lord's Day uh, 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 worldliness there, four cups of chicken salt on top of the, the, the oil-fried chips, some of this air-fried garbage, oil-fried, the fattiest animal there is, oozing through the potato on top of carbs and meat. Anyway, uh, moving on, that's one thing I thank the Muslims for, is the halal snack pack. I am way off track. I need to get back over here. Salt, like any good thing, salt can be too much. It can go on top of a conversation where, where you just don't let them end a sentence without you reminding them where they're wrong. You just, you just can't end a sentence without reminding them they'll be burning in hell. You, you, just, you know what to say, but you're piling far too much in. And, and so this is why he's already said, pray that God opens these doors that we might be able to not barge through the drywall, that we might not have to send the wrecking ball in, but that these conversations would happen naturally. Our, our, our language is seasoned with salt so that we are able to answer each person. We're able to, to point out just their inconsistencies. We're able to invite them in just the particular ways that they are yearning for Jesus. This is a way that we know, as he says here, how to answer each person. Because we're gracious, we're listening, we're salty, we know how to add some flavoring just for their palate. We are those who are speaking well, but the most important one is what he says at the end of verse 4, pray that I would speak clearly, which is how I ought to speak. Clarity is the most important one. Clarity is the need of the day. There is, there, is all, there is millions upon millions of views out there as to what it is that you believe as a Christian. I'm looking at the other people. The people on the outside, we polled three million people. You get three million different views as to what we teach inside these walls. And, and all of them are, are very estranged and different. I mean, the need for the day is clarity, not relevance, not beauty, not eloquence, not coolness. The need is clarity. So no matter how relevant you felt, Cool you seemed, beautifully you said it, relevant you tried to be, eloquently you put it across, no matter what, they understand what you are trying to say. This is the most important part of our evangelism, that however much time we have, however much time we don't have, we are able to clearly communicate the fact of our accountability to God as our creator and judge. You're accountable. God will judge you. You will be asked. You'll be held up against the standard of God's law. You're accountable to him. We need to speak with clarity about the exclusive salvation that is in Jesus. God came and died for you, and therefore it's only through that channel of Jesus that salvation is on offer. There is no other way. Can you put those, those broad concepts clearly and simply? Can you get across clearly? And, and are you, do you have the, the guts to get across clearly that without Jesus, your good works are irrelevant. Without Jesus, your whole life is, is on, the, on the side of the scales that condemns you. Without Jesus, your religious efforts are useless. Without Jesus, there's nothing in you that God will ever receive or accept. Without Jesus, you're going to hell. Can you communicate that clearly? And as we do that, as we try and weigh up these three things, ah, Paul said to be salty, Paul said to be gracious, Paul said to be clear. Which one do you aim at most? My advice is to always aim at clarity. If you're still starting out and you're super salty or way too gracious or graceless, wherever you're at, aim always to be clear because as you aim to be clear, you will learn the right balance of how much grace to add in so that you can be clear. You will learn how to, how to add a little bit of salt here so that it's more clear and less vague. If we aim at clarity, the other two will find their right place. So let us be clear because here's the overarching reality. When they talk to us, just as we learned last week with wives, husbands, fathers, children, and workers, when they look at us, they do not look at a self-owned individual. 
They look at somebody purchased and belonging to a Lord, commissioned on earth to serve that Lord. Therefore, when they speak to me, they are speaking to a messenger of Jesus, and I owe it to him to please him and speak his word graciously, salty, and clearly. So we see agonizing prayer and wise evangelism. And then we start looking at these names that he gives to us in verse 7 onwards, these examples of ordinary kingdom service. Kind of Paul's motley crew, really. Two of them are coming with the letter towards Colossae. Six of them are staying with him. One of them is living elsewhere that needs to hear a message. But his motley crew, these guys that just, uh, on the face of it, should never know each other, but they're sort of brought together in this Weird band of brothers that are serving King Jesus. It's glorious. Look first at Tychicus. We see this in verse 7 and, and uh, the, the power of his ordinary faithfulness. Tychicus had lived in Ephesus and uh, he had been saved, it seems, under Paul's Ephesian ministry. That two-year stint that we reminded ourselves of when he was preaching the gospel to that pagan city of Ephesus. He was, he was saved then and then followed Paul, it seems, <coughs> followed him back to Jerusalem uh, where he was then arrested, where Paul was arrested. And what his job now is, as we've read, is that Tychicus's job is to carry the letter of Colossae, the only copy, no Xerox back then, right? No fax machine. What else is up and coming laser edge technology? No floppy disk, no, no CD drive, okay? No, no the YouTube machine, just good old-fashioned pen on parchment in the hand of Tychicus. But with him, not just Colossae's letter, but also Philemon and Philippians and Ephesians, this guy got a flat tire or fell in the river, we lose some of the most glorious parts of our New Testament. And we wouldn't have a sermon series next year when we start out Ephesians. This is an extremely important job as he's carrying these things over to the far east of the mainland to uh, Ephesus and Colossae and, of course, Philippi. <clears throat> but it's not just that he was entrusted to carry them. It also would have been his job to interpret them and then authoritatively expound them to the people so that as, as they say, well, that's what Paul said. I'm pretty sure he still is okay with us requiring circumcision. And he'll be Tychicus saying, no, 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 he really did emphasize that. He had a huge blood vessel in the side of his head about to pop when he wrote that line. He absolutely meant X, Y, Z. He absolutely meant, and so it would be his job to explain and interpret and apply He's called here the beloved brother, which is most likely a title given to him because he's in the pastoral ministry. He seems to be somebody that Paul has seen as qualified and capable and therefore mixed together with the language of faithful minister and fellow servant, a co-slave of Jesus, Paul is saying. It looks like he really is set apart to the gospel ministry. He's called faithful minister or the word there, diakonos, meaning servant, Meaning, in calling him faithful here, as far as Paul sees Tychicus, he serves the church diligently and admirably, devotedly and very committed. He's a man who is, who is here sitting with a guy in house arrest, who is upped from his homeland, traveled land and sea to be with Paul. It is the same language that is used of Epaphras, the Colossians' pastor, which was used back in chapter 1, this beloved, faithful minister and fellow servant. So he's in ministry. He's a hard worker. He's a good, competent, gifted guy. He's godly and exemplary. He's enduring and persevering. And what I love is that he's extremely gifted, and he just does whatever is required. He's extremely gifted and he does not demand of Paul the glorious and the magisterial and the impressive ministries. At this point in his life, he's happy to be the errand boy. Now, glorified errand boy, no doubt, because he's carrying spirit-inspired letters in his back parchment or man purse, whatever they called it, but still an errand boy. He doesn't get his own pastorate. He hasn't been told to go and uh, plant a church in this wonderful city of Rome, Tychicus, that, that Paul would ordain him for that. What he ordains him to do is just carry some letters, land and sea, be it danger of robbers, dangers of shipwreck, dangers of crashes, go and get these letters to the beloved brothers and sisters in these churches. And he does the job well. 
He doesn't edit the bits he doesn't like. He doesn't open up to this part of the letter and add some bits about Tychicus. I definitely would have done that had I been him. Just, just sort of mark up the things that Paul says about him. Make sure you give him a, a handsome wage, the best wine. And you know, He doesn't do that. He's just faithful. He's a messenger. But what we see is that this faithfulness in the little with his God-given gifts, this faithfulness in the little accumulates to him having some wonderful and authoritative tasks in the future. In both the letter to Titus and the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul tells both of them, a couple of years separated, he tells both of them, I'm sending Tychicus to you. When he gets there, you come to me. Now, both of these men, Titus and Timothy, were Paul's, like, go-to protégés. They were his number one guys that he sent across the, the empire to sort of establish, bring order in some of the most important cities, especially Timothy in Ephesus, the very city he spent so long planting the church in, the very city that he, that he spent two years in. Paul sent Timothy, and both to Titus and to Timothy, Paul was willing to send Tychicus and say, replace them, be interim pastor in these extremely influential churches of the early years of church history. That is a glorious, glorious, weighty thing that Tychicus has been entrusted to by Paul. So he sees him as gifted, faithful, able to do whatever was needed at the time. And in this way, he is an example to us all. Some of us, some of us haven't read Romans 12, and we have an overly inflated view of ourselves we think that we have this enormous gifting, this enormous potential ministry. If only God would notice us, he'd put us straight in as team captain. What we need to get better at is just being faithful with whatever God's put in front of us. Just bleeding down to the bone, sweating and doing whatever is required of us to fulfill the needs of those in front of us. You cannot love the ethereal future pastorate church that you have, young man, if you do not serve to the bone to the one that is in front of you right now. How good it is of an example for us of Tychicus here who is just willing to do whatever is needed in ordinary tasks of faithfulness that accumulate to extraordinary results. And with him, Paul says, look at verse 8. Uh, sorry, verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, who is one of you. So he had come from Colossae. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Now, in Onesimus, we see, we see the power of God to transform form a life. He said that he's a Colossian. He'd come from them, and then he, he calls him a, uh, what does he uh, call him here? A faithful and beloved brother. Now, the language there means that he's probably not in set-apart ministry. He's probably not in line to be a pastor, but he does work hard and serve hard for Paul, but he doesn't call him a servant like he called Epaphras and a slave like he called Tychicus because... Though he was a slave of Christ, he was literally a slave back in Colossae. And the plot thickens just a little bit more. If you go over after Titus and you find the book of Philemon, what you find there is a letter that Onesimus is helping carry. And what we find out is that Philemon was likely the guy in whose house the whole Colossian church met. So this starts putting everything in, in context. Here's Tychicus carrying the letters. One's going to be for the whole church. One is going to be for probably one of the elders, Philemon, who, whose house is rented for the church. Uh, and, uh, and they're going to read those ones. And then he's going to go and deliver Ephesians and, of course, Philemon. But what's funny is that one of the guys who's handing the scroll called Philemon and Colossians over to Philemon was Philemon's former runaway slave, Onesimus. So here's the timeline. Philemon probably gets saved in Ephesus, just like Tychicus, just like a bunch of them, got saved in Ephesus, went back home, and was the church planning associate to Epaphras. Epaphras did the preaching. Philemon had the house. Epaphras kept on going around. Philemon kept charge of this church. Now, he's on the prayer list. Uh, sorry, in, on the prayer list of the church, of the Col Colossian church, is Philemon's unsaved slave who's working in the house. He's coming and he's serving them communion maybe. He's coming and he's cleaning up after church. I hope you, hope you took your cans and your rubbish with you. And the, the slave is serving the Christians while his master holds a church in his house. And then one day, maybe he just couldn't put up with the Christian bigotry. Maybe Philemon was not treating him very well. 
Maybe. But whatever happens, the slave Onesimus runs away from his master, which in Rome is a capital offense. If he gets found, he'll get taken home, and Onesimus gets to kill him. So here he is, run away. Where does he go? The biggest city that you can hide in, Rome. And who's he find preaching under house arrest? Paul. And against his best wishes, what happens to him? God saves him. Thank you very much. Then what does Paul do with him? I like to think, I know it's not in there, but I like to think that maybe Onesimus kept secret that he was a runaway slave and liable to judgment because Christians are law keepers and he didn't know what they were going to do with him. So here he is sitting with Paul, doing Bible study, helping serve him. And he hears that he's, he's writing a letter to Colossae, to the church in Philemon's house. Oh, this is interesting. And here's Epaphras sitting across him in the cell. And he, Onesimus, he just seems so familiar to me. And then eventually, at some point, Paul hears that Onesimus is, in fact, the runaway slave of his friend Philemon over in Colossae, and now the whole puzzle comes together. And so what Paul does in the letter of Philemon, he sends Onesimus... Yeah, I've said it back to front a couple of times. I hope you're still tracked with me. He sends Onesimus back to Philemon, the owner, and he says with him, he ran away from you useless, which is funny because his name means useful, Yep, there you go. He says, he ran away from you useless. I'm sending him back to you useful in every way. He's now not a slave, but a brother. Please receive him, forgive him. He'd likely stolen things from him because Paul says, whatever he owes you, charge it to my account. So he's willing to go to, go to bat for his friend Onesimus here. He goes back. Now, I just love to think of this from Philemon's side. He's had a runaway slave had to dish out extra, extra services, get his teenagers working extra hard to make way for the slave that's gone. And, uh, you know, and, here he's, and, then, and then a couple of years later, his slave comes back with Tychicus holding letters from the Apostle Paul who Philemon had been saved. I just love the providence of God in this whole situation. But here he is, and what we see years later is, of course Philemon takes him back as a brother, and here's Onesimus with them. He joins the church again. He serves and continues to be this faithful brother and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Ignatius, actually one of the early churchmen, he, he writes a letter to Colossae a couple of decades later, and he talks to them and references to them their pastor, Onesimus. It seems that the, the gospel had not had not so much initially changed his status as slave, his own rebellion had done that. What the gospel changed was his status in the church and in the kingdom of God. The empire of Rome saw him exactly the same, even worse after he'd been converted. But in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he became a brother, a hard worker, church member, and pastor to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who redeems and saves us and gives us a glorious testimony. Amen? Every one of us can be at least a little bit like Onesimus and that we can look back and say, I can see the providence of God, maybe saving my life physically at times, maybe, maybe guiding my life from stupid decisions or harmful people or allowing me to wander and then pulling me back in or then running me into somebody that just so happened to be praying for me, bringing me back up. However it is, every single one of us can just amen that, that, that lyric in the song that, 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 that we are prone to wander and we pray that God keeps us in the fold. Uh, uh, I love to hear the testimonies, especially around baptisms time. What a beautiful baptism Sunday Onesimus would have had back in Colossae, being baptized by Philemon back into the church. God is not just a saving God, but he's a redeeming God, using our life, however dark it may be, no matter how dark and no matter how dark it may look, turning it around to glorify himself as Lord. And then look at what we see here. We see Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus' justice. Each of these were Jewish men who were still with Paul over in Rome. Aristarchus seems to have been a Thessalonian who had been with Paul in Ephesus, went with him on his third missionary journey, and now is stuck with him, maybe arrested, but at least stuck with him in Rome, ministering to him, getting treated like a prisoner anyway by all of the Romans. So he calls him a co-prisoner. Mark, he's got an amazing story as well. And here again, we see God's grace to redeem our mistakes. Also Jewish, originally from Jerusalem, cousin to the missionary Barnabas. And it's in his household, his auntie's household, that the, uh, sorry, in his household that the Jerusalem church was first meeting. Now he hears that there's going to be a missionary journey 
Paul and his cousin Barnabas are going to go to the Gentiles. He signs up. He's a young buck. He's keen to serve. He goes with them, preaching the gospel. Gee, the the, uh, response wasn't quite what Mark was hoping for. He doesn't like all of this mistreatment stuff. And he gets uh, persecuted for being a Jew among all these Gentiles too. And then Paul comes up with the bright idea over in Pamphylia to go through some of the most ragged, dangerous, deadly mountain roads known to the empire at the time. And Mark simply says, I have discerned that the will of God is for me to return back home. Thank you very much. And off he goes. He ditches. He just runs away. He leaves Paul and Barnabas on their own in the mission and goes back home. Now, what ends up happening is Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, the brothers that they were, ended up dividing and parting ways and not going together on a second missionary journey because they could not agree as to whether or not Mark's first cowardly mistake was damning to his current ministry. Mark wanted to come on the second journey. Paul said, no, he's proven himself. He's a Christian, he's saved, he's a godly man, but he was a coward and we can't trust him out there. Barnabas, willing to say, let's take him. He's redeemed, he's okay. And so they split. Paul went the second missionary journey. Barnabas went down to Cyprus. But by this time, 10 years or so later, 12 or so years later, we have Paul writing back to Colossae and he's saying, guess who's found his way to the capital city, just about as far as he would have ever have traveled from nice little Jerusalem home. The rich, pretty boy, former coward Mark is now with me here in prison, ministering for the kingdom of God. He writes, you know, he says in in brackets in the ESV here, "You've, you've received instructions about him, please receive him. I'm guessing that, he, that it probably wasn't widespread yet that Mark's back in the good books. So here's Paul just double making sure. You had the letter. Let me remind you again. Mark's all good. We are all restored. He's, come, he's here with me. So if he ever comes to you, please receive him. And of course, his, his Justice the Jew. He went by Justice because his real name was Jesus and it was kind of already taken in the culture of Christianity, that sort of name. Uh, the two names you wouldn't name your kid, Judas and Jesus. He went with Jesus justice, so that's what he went with. He could have also called himself just me. There you go. There you go. All right, we'll keep going. But what's great here is that we're seeing these three Jewish men alongside Paul the Jew, not just giving money to, not just willing to pray for, not not just open to the idea of a Gentile mission, but these guys, he says, verse 10, are fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Do you know how easy it would have been for a Jew in the first century to just, to just guard that phrase for themselves? I'm the Jew. David was Jewish. Kingdom of God, son of David, throne of David. That's Jewish. That's us. Kingdom of God is us. And here they are, willing, sacrificial, working, kingdom of God, open to all, come one, come all, through Jesus Christ. They were giving themselves to in their life, their death, in their labor, praying, working, preaching for the kingdom of God. And they've been a comfort to Paul. They have got what Paul meant back in chapter 3, verse 11, when he said, now think of Onesimus, Philemon, Justice, Mark, Paul, Epaphras, all these Uh, uh, sorry, not Epaphras, the other guy, the other Jew, Aristarchus, all the men who fall into these categories. And what did he say back in chapter 3, verse 11? Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. He said it there, he meant it. His motley crew is made up of some of the people that would naturally be most vilified and, 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 and uh, against one another in animosity and enmity. But here they are, fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And then we see Luke, who's a great example. He's simply called here the beloved physician. He, we, we know that his work was that he was a, he was a, bodily, he was a body doctor. Heaven knows that Paul needed a doctor to go with him to stitch up the the whips on his back and to to stitch up the bigger uh, eye busts that he gets from the persecutions and to to give him all kinds of uh, 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 ailments for his illnesses and whatnot. Here he is as his medicine giver, his prescriber, his carry-along doctor, always handy to have a doctor on the mission trip. But his, his, his example is that he is leveraging his very natural gifts and skills, his whole profession, and obviously a great deal of his money as a doctor, he's leveraging it all for the kingdom. He says, here's something God's given me. I'm a doctor. 
I can heal people. I'm skilled. I've got money. I'm a professional. I've got a career. I can leverage this and put it alongside Paul and propel him. Some of you guys are never going to be missionaries, church planners, and pastors, and that's fine. That's good because that's not God's call on you. Some of you need to see something, an opportunity, a person, a ministry, a church that you can join yourself to and funnel your resources into. And there's another way that just Luke just said, I'll, I'll just go with Paul. I'll just tag along, I'll heal him, I'll help him out, I'll serve the kingdom. And in this way, his ordinary acts of faithfulness, his ordinary acts of faithfulness won him also a great reward because he ends up writing, being commissioned by Paul to write the gospel of Luke about Jesus' life and the whole of the book of Acts. He is therefore one of the majority contributors to the whole canon of the New Testament simply because he went along and leveraged his gifts for the kingdom. What a great example for us. We end on quite a harsh note here on Demas. He doesn't get much of a blurb. He doesn't get any clarification or what he's doing. He's just tagged alongside there, Paul, uh, alongside Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. But Demas is here as a warning. He's mentioned here, he's mentioned in the, the paired up letter, Philemon, but he's also mentioned years later in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says that Paul is all alone. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was a, was a right-hand man to Paul. Here he is, not many around him, but he has Demas. Demas is one of those men giving themselves, putting up his reputation because he's siding himself with a prisoner. Here's Demas sacrificing, working, serving, no doubt teaching here and there, alongside Paul. Like, like don't think yeah, he's one of those easy to spot fake Christians, got baptized and his whole testimony was so glad God promises us money, yippo, let's get baptized. You go, yeah, yeah, obviously carnal, not converted. No, no, this is a workman alongside the apostle Paul. You think, you think Paul's, uh, uh, not as good as us as discerning the unregenerate. Friends, this is the reality that we need to understand. There is no height that you can reach in ministry that secures your soul. There is no reputation you can gain in the church that secures your soul. The only thing that secures your soul is faith in Christ and love towards God. Without that, you are apt to falling. Without that, you're the devil's plaything. You can fall at any point and at every point, and that is why Demas fell in love with this present world. He was not truly redeemed, saved, or regenerated, though he looked it and looked every bit the part working alongside Paul. Do you note the difference? The difference between falling in love with the present world and loving the world Loving the world, God sent his son. Being in love with the world, Demas rejected the son. Loving the world, Paul went and sacrificed. Being in love with the world, Demas went and, and, and sunk in and dunk his teeth into pleasure. Loving the world, Paul would preach Jesus. Being in love with this present world, Demas, Demas left the message of Jesus and looked like the world. This is the great difference between being in love with and loving the world for Christ's sake. Demas is here like Judas in Jesus' own group of disciples as a warning to every single one of us. As we close out, look at Archippus. Archippus, call him what you want. He's not here. At the end of Colossians, <clears throat> at the end of our 2022, at the end of our series through this book, Paul mentions Archippus. He says simply to him, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I love it. We have no clue what he's talking about. This is, this is coded messaging between Paul and Archippus. No one else knows what he's talking about. Archippus is sitting there in Colossae. Maybe he's in another church, whatever. He's hearing this and everybody's hearing I want you, I want you to erase, not literally, but I want you to erase his name in that Bible and put yours in. As if Paul was saying to you today, inspired by the Spirit, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord, not a ministry that your brother received, that your friend received, 
Not the ministry that your pastor received or the evangelist down the road or the YouTube preacher received. Not their ministry. Your ministry. What opportunity and gifts and calling is on you right now in this season of your life that you ought to fulfill and not partially fulfill, not look like you're fulfilling like Demas, but actually give yourself to fulfill that ministry given to you in the Lord. Don't covet somebody else's ministry. Fulfill your own. It's received in the Lord. Mums, fulfill your ministry in the family. Love those children. Minister to those children. Older women, fulfill your ministry among everything else that you do to the younger women to help them, to your grandchildren, your daughters, fellowship group leaders. Fulfill your ministry, not not that of other people's groups, not coveting other sizes or other tasks or other people. Fulfill your ministry to the Lord given to you. Aspiring pastors, fulfill the ministry you have now. Not just hope one day something falls down into your lap. Your ministry to your unsaved friend, agonizingly pray, wisely evangelize. Fulfill your ministry. The unreconciled relationship that is still at odds in the church or in your family. Fulfill that ministry by bringing godly reconciliation. All of us, every single one of us, children's ministry leaders, youth workers, nurses, doctors, pastors, missionaries, plumbers, every single one of us has a kind of ministry That is not our job, but something bigger than that, a ministry, a calling to serve the people of God that we ought to undertake with zeal and faithfulness so that we can fulfill chapter 3, verse 23. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So like all the men that were there with Paul, All the men that were sent, everybody in Colossae, every single one of us needs to reckon with the reality of the sufficiency of Christ in our salvation and the lordship of Christ over all of our lives and every sphere of each of our lives in how we treat others, in how we love others, in how we relate to others. We need to, every one of us, fan into flame that divine deposit of the spirit that every one of us received. As one, chapter 1 verse 11 told us, that we really are able to be strengthened with all power according to the, his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That is, if you have received his grace, he enables you to follow him heartily, get to work. And to those who are outside of the grace of God, Paul, Paul ends this, this epistle with this simple line, grace be with you. And there are some of you who are still living the life that looks nothing like these men. You don't have a testimony like that. You have sin and evil and, 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 and illegal acts and crimes and, and sin and, and more of the same. You have self-righteousness and church kid life and, and then rebellion or whatever you have. You have self-righteousness and visions and whatever else the Colossian heretics had. You had all the same things they had, but you don't have that, that all-important moment of change where your life becomes a testimony. You can look back now and say, that's who I used to be, this is who I am. Some of you, some of you have never had that. You don't have a testimony, you simply have a, a fallen life, a sinful life, a sinful record before God. In other words, you don't have the grace of God. The grace is not with you. So whether you're a teenager growing up in a Christian home, or whether you're a teenager invited and not growing up in a Christian home, or whether you're uh, somebody who's been brought along as a friend tonight, or somebody outside the church who has been invited uh, and just found us online, wherever you are on that sort of landscape, every single one of you are in need of the grace of God. And he can transform your life just as much as he can transform the lives of these men, no less the Apostle Paul, who was a Christian killer. And the all-important fact is that Jesus died for your sin. You don't need to worry about paying for it. Jesus rose from the dead. He promises you eternal life. God demands of you only the belief and rest in that promise. You don't need to obey or perform to please him. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest your soul on him. Trust that he has died for you. And you will have all the grace of God, all the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ you'll be saved and into the great and glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
God, if we were to go around the room tonight, we would be able to add dozens and dozens and dozens of glorious stories of of human lives that have been changed and redeemed and transformed by your glorious grace. And we simply and briefly pray, Lord God, that you would give us testimonies like these people, that we would not just be saved, but according to Colossians 1.11, that we would also be strengthened with your glorious might so that we can live lives pleasing to you. We pray, Lord God, for each one of us that we might, like, might look into the future and yearn with a godly ambition how we might be used in the kingdom of God. And Father God, we pray for those among us and who will hear this later, or those in our homes and our friendship circles and our fellowship groups or our areas of influence who are not saved. God, would you give to us hearts that break and that agonize in prayer for them and mouths that speak out with love and grace and salt and wisdom and clarity about the gospel to them. Would you give us, Lord God, an an ever-growing church through new conversions and souls being brought to him? And would you give us an ever-decreasing church and that we keep sending people out to be useful? Father God, would you bless this church as we we mull over and we reflect on the glorious things that we've heard in this book to the Colossians. And we thank you for it. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Son who died for us, who lived for us, who rose for us, who is now our King and Savior, forever risen and gloriously enthroned. It's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.